Hello and welcome to the January instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month, we read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by best-selling author Gabrielle Zevin. This novel is, at its core, a love story between two brilliant gamers, but not a love story in the way you'd expect. Sadie and Sam form a friendship as children in a hospital gaming room and rekindle as 25-year-olds years later at a train station. The natural connection that bonded them as kids instantly resumes and, strengthened by their shared interest in video games, they become intrinsically linked as business partners, collaborators and best friends. Together with the help of Sam's housemate Marx and Sadie's ex-professor slash lover Dov, they create the blockbuster hit Ishigo, catapulting Sadie and Sam into great gaming success. With the wins, though, came the losses. Losses that shook their friendship and their world entirely. Nice intro, Annabelle. Thank you. As you can hear, <laughs> I am joined today by my brilliant co-hosts, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hey. Hi. Hi. How are we feeling about this book? I know we all have a lot to say. Perhaps conflicting thoughts too. I am sensing tension. <laughs> I, I hope we have conflicting thoughts. These are the most fun episodes. They are, and I'm excited. We love to disagree. We do in a healthy way. (laughs) As always, guys, we start these episodes by talking about the author. So who is Gabrielle Zevin, Michelle? Good question. She is a 45-year-old writer. She went to Harvard University. She is exceptionally intelligent. She studied English there. This is not her first novel by any stretch, though, is it, Zara? No, I found that fact really surprising, not because... I thought that this looked or sounded or felt like a debut novel, but because I actually hadn't read anything that she's written. I'd never heard of her. And mm. she's it's her ninth novel. Yeah, and so, she's a bestseller. Yeah, and this was her first about gaming, which I was also really, really surprised about because from what I've learned about Gabrielle, she grew up amongst gamers. Gaming is a huge part of her life. And I just thought because she wrote about gaming so well in this book that maybe it would be a core thread of her other novels. Mm. Yes, so as you said, Gabrielle grew up with gaming her dad was a programmer and this book is like all over tiktok it has been hyped universally gabrielle was actually interviewed on jimmy fallon last year and i hate to make this conversation about a really talented author female author about jimmy fallon (laughs) (laughs) but jimmy fallon has a book club and this was his first book club pick does he oh so it's a brand new book club yes yes and he talks all about this book he loves this book and the title of this book is a quote from as we know because we've read this book and it's mentioned in the book it's a quote from a very dark and tragic part of Macbeth but Gabrielle kind of flips this classic quote on its head like Marx does Mm. in the novel turning it into a title about hope now Gabrielle told Fallon in her interview this she said that the title kind of meant to her that every day we're alive is a chance to start again. And I just thought that was so beautiful, as I... did Fallon. <laughs> Spoiler alert, fucking love every part of it. <laughs> Me too. It's a nice quote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is a nice dear. quote. I, I'm not entirely sure I felt the book captured that, but that's fine. Oh my. What the? <laughs> I, we, can, we can talk about that as well. Oh, i tell you what I also really liked is when you hear Gabrielle talk about video games and her relationship with gaming, it becomes very clear. It's something she's really, really passionate about. And I read an interview that she did with Wyatt where she said, I think I see gaming as having the possibility to be a profoundly empathetic experience. I think the idea of the gamer, like the capital G gamer, this kind of misogynist dude shouting insults at women is antiquated and not true. I have to be self-aware because I know so little about gaming going into this. That is what I associated with gaming. Mm. Those really one-dimensional stereotypes. 
And I found this a really beautiful entry point into the community of gaming and yeah. the multifaceted community that exists. Yeah, a thousand percent. I agree with that. I also found it interesting that the dynamic that we read about in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow was kind of inspired by a real life dynamic in the gaming world. I got this from a Guardian piece that read, for 17 years, Gabrielle Zevin wrote books with no video game references at all. When her last project failed to sell as well as its predecessor, she found herself seeking out those old adventure games again, a conscious retreat into the pleasures of childhood. But having to track down a copy of her old favorite game, Gold Rush, got her thinking about how games are overlooked and sidelined as cultural artifacts. She was also fascinated by the dynamic between Roberta and Ken Williams, the married couple who founded Sierra and designed many of its titles. I didn't realize that there was like a real life couple that kind of inspired some of the storylines, some of the dynamics that we heard about in this novel. For context as well, a brief aside, when I read this in The Guardian, I was like, oh, her last book bombed. I didn't realize that. I then went and did a bit of research. The book before Tomorrow Times 3 was titled Young Jane Young, and it didn't do too badly. First of all, it was still a bestseller and has more than 23,000 reviews on Goodreads. <laughs> so I imagine if you have 23,000 reviews on Goodreads, I reckon you've sold 10 times that. I would agree. One in 10 yeah. maybe would leave a good read. That's heaps. Yeah. I mean, so, she's yeah, clearly good at her job. She's yeah. very, very successful if young Jane Young is her example of a career failure. This book is also being turned into a film. I don't know <gasps> if you guys read it. It was bought I didn't recently. Know. I did yes. not. I would watch it for sure. I, I wonder how it. they're going to do it though because I think I read this wide interview as well, Zara, and Gabrielle was saying that she doesn't quite think that like games can be made into movies. Well, I but I understood that. She said like video games, like the reason that video games just cannot be adapted into films very well is because like you, you lose kind of the nuance of the game mm. and the world. You can kind of create the world but you also can't create a lot of the other stuff that happens in the game that makes a game great yeah. but this is not a game this is a novel i can imagine a hurdle being it's quite meta some of this is set in a game at least one chapter uh. which i'm sure is divisive that we will all <laughs> talk about if they turn this into a movie which i hope they will i think we get overexcited on this podcast when we say and it's becoming a film or it's becoming a show it feels like 80% of the time these books get optioned and picked up and then they sit on a dusty old shelf for years and then never actually get turned into something. Which is really, really common. Really common. So, I mean, let's just wait and see with this one. But I think given its popularity, I would be very surprised if they didn't actually try yeah. to use that momentum to create something pretty cool. Yeah, it seems like the smart move. And also quickly before we move on to a character chat, I do want to say that I disagree with the opinion that games can't be turned into movies and TV shows because I'm currently binging The Last of Us. Have you guys? Is that based? a game yes right. which i know a few of the girls in the office love i'm hearing so many people talk about it yeah it feels like the kind of thing that i should know about but i sadly do not know about you wouldn't like it it's very <laughs> gory so i wouldn't recommend yes, it i've you. been told i wouldn't like it because it's too gory okay say no more anyway the characters in that adaption are very well fleshed out as are the characters in this book <laughs> yes well done <laughs> Let's talk favourite characters because I certainly have my favourite, which is Marks. But Zara, let's start with you. Do you have a favourite? Marks, for Marks. sure. I thought Marks was amazing. Baby boy Marks. He <laughs> was so sweet. There was like a really, really beautiful passage on 266 where Sadie is... The Persimmon passage. I think so, yes. Yes, exactly that one. <laughs> where I was like, I feel like this sums up Marks incredibly well. And I think that Marks was a beautiful slow burn character in that I didn't realise how much I liked him until I kept turning the pages. 
And this is, my, I think, probably my favourite passage from the entire book. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Sam used to say that Marx was the most fortunate person he had ever met. He was lucky with lovers in business, in looks, in life. But the longer Sadie knew Marx, the more she thought Sam hadn't truly understood the nature of Marx's good fortune. Marx was fortunate because he saw everything as if it was a fortuitous bounty. It was impossible to know. Were persimmons his favourite fruit or had they just now become his favourite fruit because they were there growing in his own backyard? He had certainly never mentioned persimmons before. My God, she thought, he is so easy to love. And I read that and I was like, I feel so deeply that a couple of my favourite people in the world, like my best friend, my partner, actually share that quality. It makes you want to cry. I would constantly say about them, oh, they're so lucky or things just always, they're so yeah. like lucky to be born with this very optimistic outlook in life. And then I thought about, you know, my partner, my best friend, and I thought, no, they're not lucky. They are just the kinds of people who have an attitude to life like that. And it is a beautiful attitude and I should do it more. It's enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's a beautiful quality. It is like human sunshine, right? Mm. Like that enthusiasm where your whole mindset and approach to life means that you enjoy life and good things happen for you. You look for them. It's like lucky girl syndrome, yes. that trend on TikTok where it's like things work out for me. If you think that and you live that out, you might become Marx. Think positive thoughts. And at the end of that passage, Sadie says, I think Persimmons might be my favourite fruit yeah. too. And it was just like the uh, the benefit of having people like that in your life is like beyond words. I also just thought that Marx was so generous and he was so obviously he was a very positive person but he saw the best in Sam and Sadie when they sometimes were being kind of dickheads yes a hundred percent I think Marx was exactly what these two arrogant young people mm-hmm. needed like but didn't deserve I felt yeah I didn't feel like they oh, deserved him they were I, wounded no but no <laughs> sorry Sam was a bit wounded Sadie wasn't until Marx passed. But before then, I was like... Sadie had the Dove thing happen. She went through that big bout of depression where she didn't leave her room. That's true. That's true. But I still felt like they treated him so terribly Mm. for a friend who was just constantly showing up. They treated him a bit like a Labrador. Yeah. Where they were like, that's Marx. He's not all that bright, but he just hangs around and like gets (laughs) us food. He's so (laughs) boring. But if Marx doesn't see that as a problem and still continues to see the good in these two people, surely there's nothing wrong with that. You know what Marx would say if he heard me say that? He'd say, well, Labradors are my favourite animal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) My favourite dog. (laughs) But Sam and Sadie were quite flawed, as we know. I loved them, though. Weirdly, I felt this like connection to them like they were my own friends. Yeah, interesting. I loved Sam. I loved Sam hard. If anyone listening to this is saying, but Michelle, Sam was a borderline narcissist. I care not that Sam had a massive ego. For example, this passage sums up Sam really well. Before Mazer invented himself as Mazer, he was Samson Mazer. And before he was Samson Mazer, he was Samson Mazur, a change of two letters that transformed him from a nice, ostensibly Jewish boy to a professional builder of worlds. And for most of his youth, he was Sam. S-A-M on the Hall of Fame of his grandfather's Donkey Kong machine, but mainly Sam. I understand that he went through this big kind of ego explosion at some point in his life. But for a kid who had to lose half of his leg or his foot and who lost his mum, I think he had to develop the ego that he did to survive in this world. I also, in the best way possible, like didn't entirely believe the ego because Mm. you knew Sam as the kid. And I felt like he never lost that central part of who he always was. Yeah. Like, even though, yeah, he was Mazer, I just kind of found it funny. Yeah. I found him hard, though. I did like him more than Sadie, for sure. 
But I did struggle with the way he treated Marks. There was a passage on 292 when Marks tells Sam about him and Sadie's relationship. Mm. I don't know if you guys remember this. I'm just going to get it up while I'm sitting here. And I found the conversation pretty hard to read. And Sam says, what you have with Sadie is nothing like what I have with Sadie. So it doesn't even matter. You can fuck anyone. You can't make games with anyone. And then... Mark says, I make games with both of you. I named Ishigo for God's sake. I've been with both of you every step of the way. You can't say I haven't been here. And then Sam says, you've been here, sure, but you're fundamentally unimportant. And then on the next page... (laughs) So brutal. And then on the next page, Mark goes, Sadie doesn't belong to you. And Sam says, she does, she's mine, and you knew that and you pursued her anyway. It is incredibly hard for me (laughs) to love a character that can be that brutal and nasty to someone. Territorial over yes. women. It's, I, it's something. Yes. I don't excuse it at all, but he's clearly, <laughs> he's clearly in pain because he loves Sadie in ways he doesn't really even understand. Yes. Like, I just think that he was confused and the ego was a protective mechanism. I know that Sam is the kind of character that wouldn't want to be pitied, but I pitied him throughout the entire book. I just for felt sure. bad for him. He just kept being faced with these, like, incredibly confronting losses. I don't know how a human would deal with that. I also wholly believe that it is really disrespectful for three people like if you're in a dynamic of three right and two of the people in that dynamic are secretly in a relationship together sleeping together living together and don't even bother to tell you until it's a year in that is so fundamentally disrespectful that's probably fair and makes you feel i think small he was feeling unimportant so he was trying to make marks feel as unimportant and as small as he had felt knowing that this had gone on for a year and they hadn't even bothered to tell him yeah it is a it is a strange but it's also an awkward dynamic and i also have to say i wouldn't put it past a lot of people feeling too awkward and never knowing how to broach it and then feeling like it's too late like that is pretty human as well i didn't like sadie at all i don't like sadie i found either. her Interesting. so completely insufferable it was hard to read the book she was so selfish her and sam had such a toxic relationship i couldn't fathom why the fuck they couldn't just communicate and have a conversation. <laughs> their friendship was impossible i don't think it was healthy i couldn't it un- wasn't healthy no. but it wasn't impossible <laughs> it was impossible it was impossible i couldn't understand why they couldn't just come together and have a conversation about what was on their mind acknowledging elephants in the room that's true friendship being like something's weird here let's have a conversation about it when she just decided one day woke up and decided one day that sam must have fucked her over must have deliberately got dov involved knowing full well what dov did to her and then she just ignored him and never brought it up i honestly thought that was one of the most frustrating storylines i've ever read in a book just have a conversation i find it so self-centered and so self-interested and i found it really hard that she was happy to forgive Dov and happy to have him in her life and couldn't actually find a way to forgive Sam, even though she wasn't even sure that Sam did anything. All right, let me say, I agree with you on almost everything. I agree with you up until the part where you say it almost was like a frustrating experience of the book or it made you want to put down the book or anything like that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think Sadie was so toxic and so unfair to Sam in so many parts of this novel. The fact that their whole dynamic began with her winning a fucking award for visiting him in hospital. Like she truly was- She was a child! Annabelle, she was pretty awful. The fact that she jumped to the conclusion that Sam was the reason that she was in this bad relationship with Dov was completely immature. And I understand that there was an abusive dynamic there between her and Dov. She never took accountability for her own sense of agency. She did not have to sleep with Dov again. She did not have to get back into that dynamic. I flatly refuse 
her hypothesis that Sam was in any way responsible for that. She was an adult and she made that decision and to not even try and chat to Sam about it, to harbour all this resentment for years shows that she is a pretty shitty person to me. I do agree with you, but they kind of established the dynamic of not communicating healthily and I don't think that that was a good thing to do. I also think that the Dov-Sam thing was probably like there was an element of self-loathing to it and that she felt so close to Sam that she just blamed him, but she actually was feeling shitty about herself. She yeah, was in pain. I, I think you're true. I think you're right. Yeah. I think she it's did hate right, herself. Though. But it's still wrong. Yeah. Like still be the kinds of person that is able to self-excavate and say, this is a me thing, not a Sam thing. And also keeping in mind, Sam had been there for Sadie. Like the way Sam rocked up for Sadie when she was going through that really dark bout of depression, the fact that he rocked up every day to her apartment and either sat there for hours to keep her company or cleaned her room or brought her food or brought her games like he was there for her I didn't see her reciprocate that level of love to him really ever the only time she really reciprocated love for him was when she got something in return and that made me not like Sadie but it didn't make me not like the book I thought the book was stronger for Sadie being so flawed yeah and maybe that's exactly where you either fall on either side perhaps because I found it hard to read the book because of that because I didn't find it that realistic I don't know many people that would go years harboring yeah. that kind of resentment without it coming out. I have one other thing on Sadie. Sorry, yes. I know that we've been talking few, about so it. I've got a few, so it's fine. I, <laughs> Sorry. I really hated one thing about her where she resented Sam for being the face of the company, resented yes. him for going out and touring and doing the marketing and doing the interviews while simultaneously also saying she wasn't very good at those things and she didn't really have an interest in them and she would prefer to just be working on games. It is so ugly to me that you look at your business partner and go, you're taking all the spotlight, whilst also saying, well, I don't want the spotlight and I'm not good at the spotlight I'm and terrible I just want to do the, the work. Spotlight. What do you mean? Like, he's actually really benefiting your business and the fact that you can't pull yourself out of your own shit to observe that he's serving a crucial role. It looks different to yours. Maybe it's a little bit more glamorous, but he is serving a very crucial role to building a gaming empire And instead of going, we just have different skill sets, you go, well, he's always putting his face everywhere. (laughs) It's like she's accusing him of having too big of an ego when she actually can't put her own ego to the side. Agree. I also felt like, and this might be a bit contentious, so I'm going to say it gently. (laughs) I found this passage on 379 pretty hard to stomach. I think I know what you're about to read. A year and a half later, she could tell the story to Dov as an amusing brunch anecdote and she realised she wasn't angry at Sam anymore. She began to feel a tenderness towards Sam and even an empathy for him. He had built that game for her, but he must have built it for himself as well. How alone he must have felt after Marx's death. How much of the business of running unfair had she dropped in Sam's lap. Sadie had never gone back to that office and she had never thanked Sam either. Like, to create something with Sam, build it up, And then both of you lose the closest person in either of your lives. And I appreciate that Sadie was the romantic partner, but I think it's also a pretty narrow way to look at the world to assume that that love enormously trumps the love that Sam had for Marx and then fuck off and leave him to run the business and deal with his grief and his pain. How can you be so self-centered? I know grief is complicated, I do. But for you to not see that other people have pain and grief too. And for it to take 18 months to realize that. Uh, 18 months after the, the game. Yeah. That's so far beyond the death. 
also so i just i was like life is bigger than you i will let you come in in a second because <laughs> i know that we're having like a bit of ping pong of yeah. sadie hate right now the other thing i can't get past is when marks was dying and they were all in the hospital room sadie turned to sam and said it should have been you that is like the most like yeah, i don't care it's disgusting. i know we do weird things when we are grieving that is beyond weird that is so disgusting that you would turn to someone that has been in your life and helped you through dark moments and say you should have been the one to die inexcusable don't care about the context no i agree with you <laughs> but i still just feel for her because like as we all know and as you've said grief is like a wild beast and i just oh, i just feel so bad for her yeah for me the fact we all care so deeply is a testament to the writing, the writing. this is all fake it's all just words on a page <laughs> there is one character that we haven't talked about yet dov dov let's throw him out there discuss <laughs> one of the strongest characters yeah. for me in yes. the book i will say he was one of my favorites obviously he was a terrible person but one of my favorites in that he was the most vivid one of the most believable i swear to god i probably met dov when i was in university he just read so true yeah, he was incredibly vivid. And I found it really interesting. I think Gabrielle Zevin did an interview with The Guardian. I think it was The Guardian. Yeah. Where she said, I'll have a younger reader come up to me and ask, why isn't Dolph punished at the end? And she goes, I'm like, because the book ends in 2012, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's fair. Like, we still weren't at a point culturally in 2012 where we were having discussions about the flaws of people like Dov and the and the pain that they inflict on other people. Gabrielle, though, in that piece also kind of said that she today doesn't see Dov as a purely evil yeah. character. She said, I was interested in the complications of that situation. He's a good game designer. A lot of his opinions on games are ones that I share, like his love of Tetris. He's quite a good mentor in a lot of ways. He does give Sadie access to resources. He does take her work seriously. I agree with that. I think yeah. he's flawed. And I think he had really great parts to his personality of course they were definitely overshadowed by the like toxic gross quite ugly (laughs) very ugly parts but if she had made him purely a hateable character he was instrumental to their success Mm. and that showed that he cared yes too sexually but he cared about a young woman who was working on games in his industry if she had made him wholly hateable, it wouldn't have worked the way it did. Yeah. Again, Gabrielle's ability to make somebody like Dov come across as not entirely a villain. Wow. Props to you. <laughs> props yes. to you. Guys, we have so much more to discuss. We have strengths and weaknesses to discuss. I think Zara's weakness <laughs> section will be quite heavy. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but before we do that, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. Guys, it's time to talk strengths and weaknesses. My overarching strength was just that this book was like incredibly captivating and I was absorbed the entire way through. Michelle, would you agree? Yes. I read this book when I had gastro. (laughs) So I know sometimes we get onto this book club podcast and we say, oh, maybe I loved this because I was on holiday or maybe I hated this because I was struggling with work and I just had to squeeze it in. I was literally hating life when I read this entire book. I was sick in bed. I was feeling like trash and I still loved it. So maybe I need to stop thinking that what's going on in my world is an indicator of like how I'll feel about a book. This book managed to override literal gastro. Oh, would you look at that? Gabrielle again. Go gal. <laughs> I, I just thought it was incredible. I thought the way that gaming was woven throughout the book and kind of the message behind the book was the strongest that I had read in any book club book that we've done. And I'm not even a big gamer. I was obsessed with The Sims growing up. And so that was a real entry point, I think, for me when it came to understanding what Gabrielle Zevin was often getting at. But I just thought the theme 
was interwoven so expertly. For example, when Marx said, what is a game? It's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's the possibility of infinite rebirth, infinite redemption. I was just like there. But there were also other quotes about gaming that I loved. Like if this were a game, he could hit pause. He could restart, say different things, the right ones this time. He could search his inventory for the item that would make Sadie not leave. I also loved this quote, we are all living at most half of a life. There was the life you had lived, which consisted of the choices you have made. And then there's the other life, the one that is the things you hadn't chosen. I just like, so true. I just love that. And I think gaming is such a great way to talk about that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the writing was like incredibly strong. The characters were vivid. I could see them all. Even though I didn't love them, I could see them. That's probably why I didn't love Sadie because I could see her too well. I also really liked that there weren't too many people that I needed to get to know. Yeah, Like there was four characters done really, really well. I also really enjoyed learning about the art and science of video games. It was amazing. It was fascinating. Like that got a massive tick from me because I was like, gosh, there's so much to this. And the technicalities behind how you build a game is like outrageous. When it came to the writing though, or maybe maybe not so much the writing, but the storytelling, the struggle that I had with this book was when the video games became a little bit too meta with the story itself. For example, I do wish wholeheartedly that Marx's death was written differently. Oh, I, I loved that. that. I know. I know a lot of people did. And I know this is probably on me because it is a book about video games, but I wanted it to be less about video games and I wanted it to be like wholly human. It felt too amorphous Mm. and vague and metaphorical almost like on page 284 let me quickly read something to you that I did sort of struggle with and this is as Marx is essentially getting shot an explosion of brown and beige feathers like dandelion seeds dispersing blood on the berries red on red but to you a tretrochromat the two reds are distinctive you land in the dirt an almost imperceptible thud an unimpressive dust cloud that only you can see another shot another shot your wing is flapping you choose to interpret this as an attempt at flight and not an involuntary death spasm it is beautiful writing that's what i want to put down like it's beautifully written but it just feels so, way too metaphorical for death. Mm. I'm like, I just kind of want to read this as human and how it kind of happened rather than trying to make this some like beautiful thing. Yeah. Because it's not beautiful to me and I don't want to read it in the context of video games. But I think that it all kind of ties back to that quote that Marx gave about the tomorrow title and whatever and how it's about like infinite rebirth. Is that what yeah, you're yeah. saying? Infinite redemption, yeah. infinite rebirth. Yeah. So I feel like gamifying his death made so much sense because like gaming is so important to all three of them but also he and all of them maybe had this belief of like limitlessness is that a word I don't know it just was beautiful in that way I think it and that's the thing it's like I get how it worked in the context of the book the books about video games and how much it means to them and so it makes kind of sense that the death would be gamified like that it just wasn't for me interesting I felt like I was in a trance that whole part of the book I was so on board when you read that out I get what you mean but I feel like I was so deep in it and Mm. so on board that I don't care. No, and I think for me, I feel like it was the most important part of the book, right? Mark's dying. And I was like skipping passages because I was like, what the fuck's happening? Just get me to the reality. My whole world was rocked. I cannot emphasize that enough. I was so profoundly moved and emotional and borderline sobbing at that part of the book. It really gripped me in a way that so many other books haven't. That was my favourite section of the book. Really? The, the bits that I did skip, though, 
<laughs> I will say, were the bits where Gabrielle got like overly descriptive of all of the games that they created over the years. I kind of got lost in the specificity yeah. of each game, but I think that has something to do with the fact that I only ever really consume romance. My brain was probably trying to like understand what was happening. No, I get what you mean. I also loved that part. Ah. So the other thing that we haven't talked about is the 50 or so pages <laughs> that we had to read about Sam and Sadie actually in a video game. And I do have to be honest, if I wasn't reading this football club, I just would have put the book down then. I oh, would not have finished it. It would have been a DNF. It would have been a complete DNF at that point. Because I was like, what I did is I was like quite confused. It was quite jarring, right? You turn the yes, page and you're like, It was confusing for sure. What yeah. the fuck is going on here? And then you read it for a few pages and you're like, oh, I see what's going on. And what I did is I flicked ahead to see how long <laughs> we were in this zone for. And I was like, it's too long. I cannot read this many pages about... I don't even know their names. Like people that lived on the hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't. I was like, I have to. But I wasn't invested enough in what was going to happen after the game to keep going. I felt like probably Sam and Sadie were going to reunite and that was the end and I would have just put the book down and been very satisfied. Yeah. You know what? I will take that criticism on board. I think it could have been half the length, that part of the yeah. book, but I did still really enjoy the change of narrative style. It was clever. And once I was in, I was in. It was clever. It was way too long too drawn yeah. out but it felt important which is why i think we all stuck it through because i was like oh this feels like i need to read it but I yeah don't. <laughs> <laughs> i am into the it's gaming thing yeah. Yeah. one thing that i did think gabrielle did so well was portray complicated friendship i want to read out a passage actually this passage is from page 162 it reads sam's heart swelled with love for sadie why is it so hard for him to say he loved her even when she said it to him he knew he loved her people who felt far less for each other said love all the time and it didn't mean a thing and maybe that was the point he more than loved sadie green there needed to be another word for it mm. and like that did at the time make me think that he had romantic feelings for Sadie but then throughout the course of the book I was like maybe Sam is like aromantic which yeah. is why when you were saying it feels unfair for Sadie to prioritize her romantic relationship with Mark's over Sam's friendship I was like I agree because I think Sam maybe doesn't have the ability to form romantic relationships yeah with maybe I don't I don't I mean none of us really know what was in Gabrielle Zevin's mind when she yeah. wrote the character of Sam though I think what we can go off in the book might hint to Sam potentially being aromantic or like even not knowing within himself I think, though, largely the way all kinds of love, platonic, familial, sisterly even, yeah. love was such a strength of this book. I know I'm taking us right back to page 15, but the writing when Gabrielle Zevin was exploring Sadie's relationship with her sick sister was incredible to me as someone with sisters who are my best friends. Can I read it? It's a little yeah, bit of a passage. I'm going to read it. Sadie might not have many friends, but she'd never felt that she needed them. Alice was nay plus ultra. No one was cleverer, more daring, more beautiful, more athletic, more hilarious, more fill in the adjective of your choice than Alice. Even though they insisted Alice would recover, Sadie often found herself imagining a world that didn't have Alice in it. A world that lacked shared jokes and music and sweaters and par-baked brownies and sister skin casually against sister skin under the blankets in the darkness. And most of all, lacking Alice, the keeper of the most innermost secrets and shames of Sadie's innocent heart. There was no one Sadie loved more than Alice, not her parents, not her grandmother. The world sands Alice was bleak, like a grainy photograph of Neil Armstrong on the moon, and it kept the 11-year-old up late at night. It would be a relief to escape into the world of Nintendo for a while. I love reading really about beautiful. sisters, and the writing on that is so 
A++. Yeah, it's amazing. I totally agree with you. I do want to, sorry to quickly go back to your point about Sam loving Sadie and it being platonic. I don't know if it was actually the strongest portrayal of platonic friendship because I wasn't convinced that it was entirely platonic. It was too complicated to be platonic. Mm. Like I think platonic friendships are actually way more straightforward than that and should be more straightforward than that rather than this sort of confusing are they, aren't they dynamic. I think he loved her romantically. I just think he knew that she was never going to love him romantically. Mm. Like that's how I felt. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, well, it's not an option. So it's like this great love that I can't name because yeah. it can't ever be reciprocated. That's really interesting. I didn't read it the same way. But yeah. I thought he just felt this love, but he didn't know what it was, but it wasn't at all romantic. Yeah. I think yeah. he felt like they were soulmates, but not in a sexual romantic way. As all things in art, up for interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> Mish, you said A++ before. So yeah. I think I could guess your rating, but I will not guess. I will have you tell us your rating. What do you rate this book? Guys, I think this might be one of my favorite books we've ever done for book club. And for that reason, it is an easy five stars. It's one of my favorite books ever. Wow. Wow. wow, It changed me. I finished and I had an eliminate icy pole because I was still struggling. (laughs) And you're like, I'm back. And I was like, I feel a million bucks because it just healed me. Well, you and John Green are on the same page because he says on the cover of this book, one of the best books I've ever read, which is a huge call, John and Mish. And I love John Green. (laughs) So I'm on the John Green bandwagon. Zara, what are you rating this book? I think I'll give it a three. Oof. Okay, reason. I mean, we were just heard I, mean, <laughs> I think surely I've given it. Yep. Surely. They're clear to us. <laughs> I would Zara rate- would just say average. Average. <laughs> it's not like I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. I just, I really wish that video game 50 pages weren't there and I really wish a few other things weren't there and I really struggled with Sadie and that ruined the book for me. (laughs) I would rate this book a four. I think it could have been shorter. I really liked it though, but I wasn't obsessed with it. Like you and John, Mish. (laughs) I don't even need to fight because I think lots of listeners agree with me and it's also their favourite book. No, I I cannot wait to see what people say about this book. Please come to our Instagram at The Shameless Book Club. Come to the comments. Tell us what you thought, what you liked, what you didn't like. We want to hear it all. Tell us on TikTok. We'll put our ratings up. Mm-hmm. I'm staring straight at my camera right now. <laughs> we'll put those ratings up. We want to know in the comments. What do you think? Yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening to the January installment of the Shameless Book Club. Next month, we will be shaking things up a little by reading our first mystery thriller in quite some time, The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. Mish, would you like to read us a snippet from the blurb? I would love to. Thank you. In a peaceful retirement village, four unlikely friends meet up once a week to investigate unsolved murders. But when a brutal killing takes place on their very doorstep, the Thursday Murder Club find themselves in the middle of their first live case. Elizabeth, Joyce, Ibrahim and Ron might be pushing 80, but they still have a few tricks up their sleeves. Can our unorthodox but brilliant gang catch the killer before it's too late? I feel like this is the kind of book that we've missed the bandwagon on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's great to do it now. Yeah, breaking the fourth wall. We're going back to the first installment of this, right? It is not a brand new book. It was released a couple of years ago. Yes. We want to get on the bandwagon. We want to see what the hype's about. And we think this is a great entry point. If you are the same, you feel a little left out of the loop, read it with us so we can get in the loop and then have an opinion on the loop. Yes. So make sure you pick up a copy and read along with us in February. Until then, come follow us on Instagram at The Shameless Book Club or search the same username on TikTok. That's it from us. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much, guys.
Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.